This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Karen O'Hanlon-Court welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Genscript. Genscript is the leading gene, peptide, protein and antibody research partner for fundamental life science research, translational biomedical research and early stage pharmaceutical development. Since their establishment in 2002, Genscript has exponentially grown to become a global leading biotech company that provides life sciences services and products to scientists in over 100 countries worldwide. During our tenure, we have built the best in class capacity and capability for biological research services, encompassing gene synthesis and molecular biology, peptide synthesis, custom antibodies, protein expression, antibody and protein engineering, and in vitro and in vivo pharmacology, all with the goal to make research easy. Today's presentation is titled, A Guide to CRISPR-Cas9 Delivery, How to Maximize Your Editing Efficiency, and is being presented by Dr. Alison Mayle from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Alison completed her PS at Michigan State University, where she had the opportunity to start doing research through the Professorial Assistantship Program. Alison then went on to earn a PhD in Molecular and Human Genetics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. During her PhD, Alison studied DNA methylation in normal and malignant hematopoiesis. As a postdoc at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Alison now studies P53 mutant leukemia. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you may have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Alison at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly forward slash CRISPR webinar. So now over to you, Alison, for the presentation. Thanks so much for the introduction. Um, so. I am guessing that everyone who is here listening to this webinar um, already kind of knows the basics of CRISPR-Cas9 because it's been so popular and so uh, widely covered these days. Um, but you might be here because despite CRISPR being supposed to be so easy, anyone who can pipette can do it, your experiments haven't been working, or you're about to start your first CRISPR experiment or a new type of CRISPR experiment and you want to make sure that it works well. Um, but just so that we're all on the same page, let's just talk quickly about the components of the system. So Cas9 is the protein itself, the nucleus, that's going to make a double-stranded break in your DNA sequence. Um, although there are also mutated versions of this protein that make a NIC instead of a double-stranded break. And we're gonna talk a lot today about how to design your target sequence. So that's here in blue. Um, it's the sequence that the RNA that binds to the Cas9 will use to guide the protein to the DNA. Um, the red part of the RNA is the scaffolding, and that will remain the same. So today when I talk about guide RNAs or single guide RNAs, either gRNA or sgRNA, um, I'm using those terms interchangeably to mean this entire piece of RNA. Um, but when we talk about designing, we're just talking about the target itself. And the target is directed to the DNA by this PAM sequence, which is the protospacer adjacent motif. Um, so for the, the commonly used um, Streptococcus pyogenes Cas9, uh, this PAM sequence is NGG. There are enzymes that have different PAM sequences as well. Um, so for the rest of the webinar, we'll talk about how to plan your CRISPR experiment, um, which involves deciding on a delivery method, and I'll overview some of the methods available how you design that target the, of the gRNA using online tools, uh, designing a template if you want to use homology-directed repair to make a specific mutation, um, as well as picking the target cut site to go along with your template. Um, and then, of course, you order and prepare reagents, deliver the components to your cells using the method we've chosen in step one, um, and then you have to check the editing efficiency to make sure that you have cuts that you want. 
Um, and we'll spend a lot of time talking about deciding on the delivery method because in my experience, how you get the components into the cells um, really makes a difference in the efficiency of your, your Cas9 experiment. So um, and this will also determine how you can proceed with obtaining your guide RNA and your Cas9, what sort of plasmids or vectors you need them in. We'll talk about some of the online tools that are available. There are a lot of them. Um, and at this point, you'll also think about what species of Cas9 you should be using, which will depend on your PAM sequence requirements. Um, and if you're using HDR, you design your HDR template, and then the rest of it is pretty straightforward. So as I said, I think um, how you deliver the components of the CRISPR system to your cells has a really large impact on how well the experiment works. Um, so there are a variety of options for this. Um, so today we'll talk about delivering them using plasmids, uh, using viral vectors, using mRNA and gRNA, and using RNPs, which I'll talk more about. And I've actually um, previously written an article on Bite-Size Bio about each of these methods um, all together. So I put the link here, you can search for it on Bite-Size Bio, but I'll also talk about them today. Um, but that's another resource if you wanna go back and, and overview these. Um, the most important point that I'm gonna keep coming back to when we talk about deciding on your delivery method is that you really have to consider the system that you're working with, um, what your desired where the region that you're cutting, what type of cells you're using, how well they take up various DNA or RNA or protein. Um, and really a lot of things are cell dependent when it comes to CRISPR. So you will have to do some optimizing based on the system you're using, but there are some general guidelines that we can discuss. So one of the most straightforward ways to deliver the components of CRISPR-Cas9 to your cells is using plasmids. Um, and there's a couple of options. You can use one plasmid that expresses Cas9 and a separate plasmid that expresses one or multiple sgRNAs. Um, or you can use all-in-one vectors that have both of these uh, sequences coded. Some things that you have to consider if you're going to use plasmids um, are what kind of promoter will work well in your cells for expression of Cas9 and the guide RNAs. Uh, whether you want transient expression of Cas9 or stable expression, and so you want a plasmid that can integrate, um, and whether you need, which you probably want in this case, um, uh, some sort of tag or a marker or a selectable marker. This is really easy to do in a plasmid because you can simply have your marker or your selection uh, being encoded in the plasmid as well. And then finally, what, the, what transfection method you're going to use, which is going to be very cell type dependent. Um, and so it should be the same as any other time that you're using plasmids in your cells. So some pros and cons of these, which I've kind of already covered. Um, the pros are that there are lots of validated plasmids that are widely available um, through GenScript, through AdGene, through other websites. Um, through other labs. Um, so you might not have to do a lot of work, uh, but if you need to change something about the plasmid, you need a different promoter for the same guide RNA or something like that, it may require some cloning, um, which takes a little bit of time, but it shouldn't be too difficult. Um, you do have a lot of flexibility where you can use different promoters, you can use different plasmids that will integrate or not. If you do choose a plasmid that's going to integrate into your genomic DNA, um, this can have a negative impact on your experiment, um, but it also might be something that you desire. So you have a lot of flexibility here. You can pretty easily multiplex plasmids um, using multiple plasmids, or since the guide RNA itself is a short sequence, you can put multiple guide RNAs into a single plasmid. Um, and you have, as I mentioned, really easy uh, selection or tagging because you can just put the selection marker into your plasmid. And the efficiency for this method is really gonna be dependent on the cells you're targeting, how well you can transfect them, um, and how well they express anything that's coming off of a plasmid. So this can be really good if you have cells that you already know how to transfect, um, but it could be a little bit difficult if your cells don't take DNA well. So the next method to talk about is using viral vectors. This is very similar to using plasmids, except for now it's going to be packaged in a virus. Um, so you can either obtain, again, from various websites or from other labs, um, a virus expressing Cas9 and your sgRNA, either all in one vector or separate. Um, or again, you may have to clone if you need to make a change to putting in a different sgRNA into an existing backbone. 
So similar to plasmids, you can use different promoters. You need to pick a promoter that will express well in your cells of interest. Um, you can include tags or a marker or some sort of selection. Um, and then you also have to consider what type of virus you're going to use, whether it's a lentivirus or some other retrovirus like MSCV that might be more efficient for some cell types or AAV. And each of them has advantages and disadvantages depending on your cells. Um, so again, the pros of this methods are that you have a lot of flexibility. You can pretty easily multiplex, especially if you can introduce multiple viruses, but you can also put multiple sgRNAs into a single virus. Um, you have ease of selection and tagging. Um, there's some commercial availability, especially of lentiviruses. Um, and again, you might have to clone something if you need to change something about an existing vector, but it should be pretty straightforward. Um, and then, of course, as with any experiment using viral vectors, the integration of the virus itself might have a negative impact on your cells. Uh, this also could have an impact on the viability of your cells. So the efficiency overall and the viability of your cells is going to be really dependent on the virus type you choose and the cells that you're targeting. Um, and so in this um, regard, it's also very important to consider your multiplicity of infection um, and to remember that expression of Cas9 at different levels, because there's different integration numbers, um, could affect the growth rate of your cells. So in either case with plasmids or vectors, if you're using some sort of integrated system, you might want to derive a clone rather than using a pool of cells to avoid this variability of the amount of Cas9 that's actually being expressed in your cells. Um, this takes some time, but if you have cells that you already have a protocol for deriving a clone for, it's probably worth it uh, to cut down on the variability and to have really nice clean results. So if you have cells that don't like to take up DNA or for whatever reason you don't want to introduce DNA into your system, um, there are some other methods that people have come up with to introduce the components into cells. So one of these is simply to either purchase or transcribe mRNA that encodes Cas9 as well as the guide RNAs. Um, and then you put them into your cells either by electroporation or microinjection or using a lipid-based method, any way that you would be able to get RNA into the cells that you're working with. Um, so that's the main consideration here is how are you going to get RNA into the cells that you're working with? So the pros here are that you really have transient Cas9 expression because the, uh, the Cas9 will be translated and then it will be destroyed by the cell. Um, you can easily multiplex by introducing different guide RNAs at the same time. You don't require any sort of cloning, although if you're going to transcribe these yourself, you will have to do the transcription, and you're not introducing any DNA. Um, but the cons here are that you don't really have any way to do selection or tagging uh, because you're just introducing RNA. Um, and there's often a lower efficiency here, and that's probably partly because the cell itself has to translate the Cas9 mRNA into Cas9 protein before it can cut. And at that point, the guide RNA that you've introduced may have been degraded. Um, but I also want to mention at this point that there are cell lines already made or that you could make yourself as well as for sure mice and certainly other model organisms that express Cas9 in the cells already. And so if you have a system that's already expressing Cas9 and you just need to introduce your guide RNA, you can do it either on a plasmid or a virus, as we talked about before, or by introducing just the RNA using one of these methods. And then the last method I'll talk about today is using ribonucleoproteins, or RNPs. So in this case, you transcribe or purchase your guide RNA, and then you pre-complex it with recombinant Cas9 protein, which you can either purchase um, or you can uh, make it yourself in the lab. Um, and so in this case, compared to using the Cas9 mRNA, the Cas9 protein is already there, so you don't have to wait for the cell to translate the protein, and so the efficiency can be higher. Um, considerations here are when you're, if you're going to transcribe the guide RNA yourself, um, you order oligos to do this, and they need to have a promoter to do the transcription um, and something to either make an in, the entire scaffolding, which you can do by PCR overlap of plasmids. 
you have to think about the ratio of protein to RNA in the complex, particularly if you're trying to multiplex multiple RNAs. Um, the ratio of each of the RNAs to the protein is important. And the amount of protein and RNA that you end up putting into the cells um, will affect your efficiency as well. And then like all of the other methods, um, another consideration is how you're going to introduce these protein RNA complexes into your cells. So common ways include electroporation or nucleofection, using lipid-based methods or microinjection. Um, so the pros here are that once again, you have very transient Cas9 expression, so you don't have to worry about Cas9 hanging around and affecting the growth rate of your cells. Um, you can pretty easily multiplex by including multiple guide RNA in your complex. You don't have to do any cloning, although again, you may have to do some transcription, and you're not introducing any DNA into your cells, which might be um, useful. But um, the downside is that you, again, don't have really a good way to do selection. Um, there is some Cas9 recombinant protein that's fused with GFP um, available commercially, so you can use that, in which case you could at least use GFP to identify cells that have the protein introduced into them. Um, of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that your target site has been cut, but you might have a little bit of a ability to um, select at least cells that have received the, the complex. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So to uh, review these different methods, um, it really, really depends on the system that you're using, um, whether your cells respond well to viral vectors or to DNA versus RNA and protein. Um, and it's possible to combine these systems. As I mentioned, there are already some cell lines as well as mice and other model organisms that have Cas9 expression where you would just need to introduce your guide RNA, which you can choose different methods to do that. Um, you could also use something like a viral vector to make a cell line that already expresses Cas9 um, that you would introduce yourself and then select those cells um, and introduce the RNA in a different method. Um, and the other thing to think about is that for some of these methods, it's easier to test multiple guides than for others. And when I, what I mean by this is different than multiplexing. Um, so in most cases, when you're doing a genome editing experiment, you want to use multiple guides targeting the same gene to confirm that your effect that you're seeing, the phenotype of the cells, um, is an on-target effect because the, the different guides are unlikely to have the same off-target effect. So if you see the same phenotype with multiple guides, then you're, you're more confident that you have an on-target effect. So if you are using a system where you have to do extensive cloning, um, it might be difficult if there aren't already vectors available. Um, it might still be worth it if this is something you're going to use a lot in your own work or other people in your lab or in the community will find useful. Um, but some of the methods where you do less preparation might be easier in this regard. So you have to balance for yourself what the, the ratio of time spent preparing to the expense um, to the number of guides that you can introduce, what your priorities are. So once you've decided on your method, uh, you can move on to designing your guide RNA. And I, I um, suggested that you decide on your delivery method first because when it comes to designing your guide RNA, you may be able to purchase plasmids or uh, viral vectors that already express your guide RNA, in which case you don't need to do as much work designing them because you'll just look for ones that already exist. Whereas if you're doing something like the RNPs and you want to transcribe your guide RNA, when you actually go to order your guide RNA, you'll need to order oligos that have um, a uh, promoter on them as well. So there are lots of online tools available for designing guide RNA. Um, I know of at least a dozen different tools, and there are probably many more that I haven't come across. Um, and so some considerations if you are choosing between these tools are what genome you're trying to target. So again, if you're working with uh, mice or human cells, or if you're working with zebrafish or Drosophila or other very common model organisms, there's probably many, there are many tools that have your genome of interest already integrated into their system. Um, and so they will already be able to identify the PAM sequences and then the target sequence that's next to the PAM. 
um, as well as search for potential off targets because the, the genome is already loaded. If you're using something that's a little bit less common or less common, at least in the CRISPR field, um, you might be a little bit more limited in the tools that you're using, but you could still probably find one because there are a lot of them out there. So you also have to decide which nuclease you're going to use. Um, there's just the, the standard Cas9 that most people use has, as I said, an NGG PAM sequence, but um, there are other nucleases that have other PAM sequences. And so if you're going to use one of those, some of the tools already have the other PAM sequences integrated. Um, how you input your target sequence or the, and by target sequence, I don't mean the actual guide RNA target, but the, the region of the genome that you're trying to target is different from tool to tool. So some of these tools, um, you can enter in a gene name or a transcript identifier, um, which could be really useful if you're just trying to knock out or reduce a gene of interest. Um, other tools, you can enter chromosomal coordinates, which could be useful if you're trying to knock out a promoter or an enhancer or some peak that you have from some other experiment. Um, you can enter the actual coordinates. Some of the tools also have integrated browser tracks that you can look at where the cast or where the guide RNA is binding in the genome. Um, and so and others you can uh, enter in just an actual nucleotide sequence. So depending on what you're starting with, what you're trying to target, um, different tools will be easier to use than others. Um, each of the tools also has a different scoring or off-target prediction algorithms. Um, most of them have frequently asked questions pages right on the website, so you can look them up and they will either tell you about the algorithm on the page or they'll cite a paper where they've described the algorithms. Um, so depending on, again, the specifics of your experiment, whether off-target prediction is more important to you or um, efficiency, you could pick a tool that has a scoring system that matches your priorities. And then the last thing is the user interface and the output uh, format that each of the websites gives is a little bit different. So if you have multiple websites that are going to get you the information you need, at the end of the day, it's really just a matter of choosing which one you'd like to use the best. Um, which I think is important in science that we, we don't spend a lot of time doing things we don't want to do. If, if you have to spend a lot of time doing something, you should pick the one that is at least makes you the, the most happy. Um, so I, I've talked a lot about these tools and I'll talk some more about specific ones, but I really also want to emphasize, don't reinvent the wheel. Um, there are already libraries that exist. Uh, there are more and more publications available about CRISPR and Cas9. Um, someone might have already done all of this hard work of identifying the target sequences that work for your favorite gene in your cells of interest. And if that's the case, um, I think it's a great idea to just start with the sequences that they have. And again, you, you probably want to include multiple guide RNAs or a guide RNA and an shRNA in your overall experiments to confirm that you're not looking at off-target effects. But you can start with something that someone else has already validated rather than starting from scratch. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about some of the specific tools. So one of the specific tools um, was one of the very first tools, which is crispr.mit.edu. So this is from Feng Zhang's lab. Um, and I don't actually want to spend a lot of time talking about this tool in the end. I'll explain why in a second. But um, one of the things I do want to point out is that they have a Google forum that you can um, enter and you can discuss um, with lots of people, different aspects of CRISPR-Cas9 experiments, not just their, their tool, um, but other aspects of CRISPR. And so if you're having trouble, this might be a good place to go and discuss with other people who may have already experienced troubleshooting the same issue. And the reason I'm not talking about the rest of the things on this website is um, as of April 1st, this message shows up if you go to this website, um, which basically just says that when they designed this tool um, several years ago, it was one of the first tools available and their server couldn't really handle the amount of work that it was being um, asked to do from this website. So they used um, their genomes that were repeat masked and they actually recommend right on their website, if you if you go to this URL, um, that you switch to a different tool that doesn't do this and that uses different uh, methods now that the techniques have become more sophisticated. So I put it here because it was one of the first um, and a lot of people do still use it, but um, they would recommend and I would also recommend that you try a different tool these days. 
So one of the tools that I like um, is crisperscan.org. So it has six different species, including two different zebrafish assemblies. Um, and what you can input here is you have options. You can either input the gene or transcript name, you can input a nucleotide sequence, and they also have these UCSC genome browser tracks that you can look at and see where the guide RNAs bind. Um, the output that they give you includes a score for the guide, and the higher the score, the better. Um, the chromosome coordinates of the target itself, and then a suggested oligo sequence for um, doing in vitro transcription of the guide to complex it with Cas9. Now, you may need to change this sequence depending on what kind of polymerase you're using to transcribe the guide, um, but the, you can then just pick the target sequence within that oligo sequence. It tells you which strand is going to be targeted by this guide, and it uses two different algorithms to predict off targets, and there's information about each of the algorithms on the website um, and citations for them. And they also have on their um, help page various tips, um, particularly on generating guide RNAs if you're doing in vitro transcription. So I have a couple of screenshots from this website to show. So this is if you enter in a, a gene name, um, so I did for mouse a gene that I've targeted before. Um, so just so you can see how the output looks. Um, and it got cut off in my screenshot. You can also click on the, the far right side to export this whole list in a tab delimited file so you can look at it offline um, or put it into Excel or whatever else you want to use um, to analyze these. Um, and so you also, if you click on these, will get information about each of the off-target predictions. Um, and then what I really like are these UCSC genome browser tracks where you can see at the bottom of the screen the RefSeq um, gene diagram for the gene that you've put in. Um, and then at the top are all of the identified potential guide RNA sequences. Um, and then the color of them, the, the more green they are, that means that they're better, either a, com a combination of being better specificity um, and also having few or zero off-target effects, um, whereas the gray ones probably have off-targets or are not very specific in other ways. Um, and so, of course, since you're in the genome browser, you can also use this to enter in chromosomal coordinates, um, and you can put other tracks that you may already have from your work into this window and, and compare where the guides are cutting um, in comparison to other sequencing data that you've already generated. Um, and then the last tool I'll talk about in any sort of detail is called GuideScan. Um, this tool has six different genomes, and you can choose between whether you're using Cas9 or CPF1, which is a different nuclease uh, that does the same thing. Um, you input here the genomic coordinates, either individually or as a file, um, and you are limited in this tool to 100,000 nucleotides. So if you put genomic coordinates that span more than 100,000 base pairs, um, it will give you a message that says, this is too big, we're just going to look at the first 100,000. Um, one of the things that's cool about this website is you can choose whether you want to design guides that are flanking the region that you typed in, or whether they're internal to that guide. So if you're trying to delete some exon or something, you can put the coordinates of that exon and it will look for guides that are right around the edges of that exon. And there's a lot of different options for how you want to sort the results on this website. And the output that it gives you are, of course, the genomic coordinates of your guides, the sequence itself, the number of off-targets, and then it gives you some more information right on the website about the off-target summary, um, which gives you the number of off-target predictions that have either two or three mismatches, so you can decide how stringent you want to be. Um, and it gives you a score, which the, the website describes the algorithm. Um, how specific it thinks they are. And this is also, I think, a nice feature is that for each guide, it will tell you um, an exon annotation where if there are multiple transcripts for the gene that you have put in um, or the, the gene that's being targeted by the region that you've put in, it will tell you which exon in each of those transcripts is being targeted by the guide RNA um, on the list. And of course, they also have a help page with many frequently asked questions. Um, so this is a screenshot of where you input the data. So you can see in this big box, um, kind of in the middle on the left, you just type in your chromosomal coordinates. You can put one per line there, or you can upload a file below. You choose which genome you're looking at, which enzyme you're using, and as I mentioned, within or flanking that region. Um, you can sort it different ways. Um, and then you can either display just three guides, so you don't have to look at this whole list, or all of the guides. 
Um, and once you do this, this is the output. It's on the same page, it's just down below. Um, and as I said, there's a lot of information about off targets with multiple mismatches and an Exxon annotation. Um, and as you can see there, you can also download this whole list so that you can look at it offline. So that's the last tool I'm going to talk about in detail. Um, I'll put a, a small list here of just a handful of other tools that I'm familiar with um, and some of their features, but there are many. So if you have come across a different tool by your own Google searching or in papers that you read in your field, um, it's likely that that tool works great as well. Um, as I said, these just happen to be the ones that I'm familiar with. Um, the one that I listed at the top, this CRISPR, um, has over 120 genomes. So a lot of these earlier tools only have a few genomes, but if you're working with um, something that isn't mouse, human, zebrafish, um, you can look at some of these other tools that have more genomes that are newer versions. Um, it also has nine different um, options for different PAM sequences that, you're in that you might be interested in. Um, and it integrates eight different efficiency scoring systems. So this one is really comprehensive. This is actually the tool um, that's described in the citation that pops up on the CRISPR.MIT website now. Um, the next one from Stanford includes whether you are going to use Cas9 that's NICase, where it only um, cleaves one strand of the DNA rather, two, rather than two. Um, sometimes people use this to make two NICs um, of hundred or so base pairs away from each other or, or less, um, and then that intervening sequence should be deleted. Um, and you can use this to avoid some of the off-target effects of having double-stranded breaks, because if you only have one NIC at an off-target site from one of your two um, sites, um, the cell handles NICs a lot better than it does double-strand breaks. And so as long as the two uh, NICase guides that you've chosen are not close together somewhere else in the genome, off-targets are less of an issue. Um, it also has a option for if you are trying to use CRISPR to do gene activation or gene repression, that it will target the appropriate regions for that. Um, the next one, the R Genome tool, has 11 different PAM options and more than 30 genomes, and it also has an option to download the tool itself so you don't have to be online to use it. Um, and CHOP tool has more than 70 genomes, um, and you have the options of using uh, Cas9, CPF1, or Talens. Um, so if you're doing an experiment where you might need to use multiple types of genome editing, this might be a good website. Um, and then there's also a fly CRISPR tool that has a whole bunch of different fly genomes. So if you're working with um, something that isn't Drosophila um, or isn't Drosophila melangaster, then this might be the best option. So in summary for the guide RNAs, um, there are many, many tools available and they're all likely to give you good options as long as you have entered in the information that you need and you pay attention to the off-target effects. Um, so at the end of the day, it probably doesn't really matter which one you choose um, as long as you pick your specific application that might narrow it down, but you can just pick the one that you happen to like the best. And I'm going to remind you again that you can also purchase libraries, um, you can purchase specific guide RNAs, some of which have been validated. Um, that can save you a lot of time with this um, designing the, the guides if somebody has already done this work. Or again, do a literature search for the cells that you're interested in and the gene that you're interested in or the gene that you're interested in and CRISPR. And even if somebody used a different cell type, it might give you a starting point of a sequence that worked in one cell type, which may or may not work in your cell type. So, so far, everything that I've been talking about is really just um, using CRISPR-Cas9 to make cuts at a specific site in the genome. Um, and then you're hoping for some sort of indel that will affect the gene. But if you want to use CRISPR to make precise deletions, this is also possible um, by using homology-directed repair. So as a reminder, these are the, the two main ways that a cell will handle a double-strand break. There's non-homologous end joining, which is what we take advantage of in all of these previous um, things that I've been talking about, where um, this is an error-prone method where the cell joins the two ends of a double-strand break back together. But this will frequently either add or delete a few nucleotides. And if that number of nucleotides is not a multiple of three, you end up with a frame shift in your gene. And this frequently will disrupt the protein by introducing a premature stop codon. 
Um, the other way that cells handle double strain breaks, though, is using a homology-directed repair, where the cell actually uses a template that matches the region surrounding the double strand break um, and, and copies that template. So you can take advantage of this very precise method, um, where you can have a template that you introduce to the cells that is mostly homologous. Um, and um, but you can introduce just um, a few little mutations within the, the region that you're targeting. So um, when you're working on HDR, um, if you need to optimize it, um, you need to optimize a couple of different things. You need the DNA that has homology to the sequences flanking the double strand breaks. So when you design your template, we'll talk a bit about that more. Um, you'll have homology to the sequences flanking the double strand break. Um, so this is going to be the template that the cell uses um, to do error-free repair, except for you're introducing a specific error or mutation that you want the cell to have. Um, and considerations are the concentration of the template DNA, um, which will affect whether the cell actually uses this DNA that you've introduced as a template, um, or whether it will look for other similar sequences. Um, the length of the homology arms also matters for whether the cell will use this sufficiently. Um, and then you can also consider things that are happening in the cells themselves, which include the cell cycle status, which affects whether the cells are more likely to use NHEJ versus um, homology-directed repair. Um, and different cells have different um, relative activities of NHEJ and HDR, um, as I said, at different steps of the cell cycle, but also just in general, different cell types um, are, are different in the way they handle double-strand breaks. So when it comes to optimizing your template for HDR, um, you can choose between whether you are making using a single-stranded DNA template or a double-strand DNA template. Um, double-strand DNA templates are probably familiar to you if you've done other types of genome editing um, in the past. And in this case, you need really long homology arms that are at least 500 base pairs long. Um, but the single-stranded templates have been shown to require homology arms of only about 40 base pairs. Um, so this makes it a little bit easier to, um, to, de to design and obtain the template itself. Uh, work has also been done showing that asymmetric arms, meaning more base pairs on one side of the break than the other, um, can improve efficiency in some cell types. Generally, you want your cut site that you're using your guide RNA to, to direct um, to be as close to the mutation you're introducing on your template as possible, um, because the cell is more likely to repair this um, correctly. And the um, template DNA being complementary to the, the strand that is not targeted by the sgRNA could be more efficient, although there's a little bit of, of conflicting data here. Um, and a really important point if you're doing any Cas9 experiment, but particularly if you're using HDR, Cas9 itself will keep cutting unless you have mutated the target site or the PAM sequence. So if you are introducing something where you have a mutation within the target sequence itself, um, that should be okay. But if you're introducing your mutation and it, you don't have an NGG close enough where the actual target site of the sgRNA um, encompasses your mutation of interest, you also need to introduce into the target site or into the, the PAM sequence in your template mutation. So this can be something that doesn't affect the amino acid structure of your protein, um, which is important if you're trying to introduce a gain-of-function mutation. Um, but that will prevent Cas9 from continuing to find this now repaired um, region and cutting it again and just causing a double strain breaking, causing an indel and not what you want. Um, so when it comes to the cells themselves, again, if you have a cell line or you're working with something where you can synchronize the cells for delivery of the components at a specific phase of the cell cycle, um, this has been shown to improve efficiency for different cell types. Um, other people have taken the approach of inhibiting NHEJ, either using various inhibitors like SCR7 um, or using SHRNA against genes that are important for 
um, NHEJ. Um, as long as these are reversible, it shouldn't have any long-term effects on your cells, but it's something that you uh, may need to consider whether or not you actually want to be messing with another repair pathway in the cells. Um, and then how and when you deliver the HDR template itself. Um, so for example, whether you have sequential or simultaneous delivery of the template and the RNP um, has been shown to affect how efficiently the cell uses the template. Um, so then once you've designed all of the components of this system, now you get to the relatively easy part. Um, different vendors have different versions of all of these uh, reagents, so you just have to look at your vendor of choice, talk to your reps, look on their websites um, to see what you should order. Um, and then a few keys to success that I've found. These are pretty standard lab practice, but it's important when you're doing an experiment like this to really keep in mind. So the first one is um, I say to keep it clean. And so in this case, I'm talking about no contamination of primers, your DNA or RNA that you're introducing. Um, again, this is standard lab practice, but it's really important when you're working, especially with RNA, that you also don't have any contaminating nucleases. Um, and you might want to consider if you're doing um, big screens or anything where you're using a library to have a designated workspace for those particular plasmids or libraries. Um, if you are doing anything where you're amplifying the guide RNA um, itself, you really need to use a high fidelity polymerase because of course you don't want to introduce any mutations um, into the guide itself or it's not going to target the region that you want it to. And finally, I found that the happier my cells are, the better the results are. So you, if you're working with in vitro culture, you want the cells to be cultured under the best conditions possible, um, and then they'll respond the best to the introduction of these components. So once you've now decided on how to deliver the components to the cells and you've obtained the components, um, you may need to troubleshoot. Um, and the big thing I'm going to say here is just look online for protocols. There are so many different protocols available online in different journals, on different websites, on different lab websites. Um, someone has probably done CRISPR in the cells that you're working with. And if not, you can start with the most similar cells you can find um, and um, do the best you can. And I would also recommend in this case to ask around to other labs um, particularly labs that have published these protocols, if you're struggling, um, because there may just be something in the protocol that isn't clear and people are often willing to chat with you about the protocol and then you can figure out what's wrong. Um, so the last thing I'll talk about quickly is um, you once you've done all of this and you've put the stuff in your cells, you need to determine how efficient your editing has been. Um, and you need to do this because you need a benchmark. If you're trying to improve your efficiency, you need to know what your efficiency is starting at. So there are a variety of methods to do this. Um, some are enzyme-based, like Surveyor or T7E1, which is T7 endonuclease one. Um, so these methods, you amplify um, the region that you targeted by PCR. You then um, hybridize single-strand parts of your PCR to each other, and uh, these enzymes will identify whether there are changes, there are mismatches between the two. Um, if you've done HDR and you've introduced a silent mutation, sometimes you can also make this silent mutation um, alter a restriction enzyme site, which makes it really easy to amplify around that region and then just cut with a restriction enzyme like you would in any other lab technique, um, run the DNA out on a gel, and based on the sizes, you can see whether um, you have introduced or destroyed this cut site. If you are making a deletion um, where you're putting two guides fairly close together to make a small deletion, um, but far enough apart that you can see this change in nucleotide size on the gel, um, you can just do PCR around that region and see whether there's a size difference. And this won't be completely quantitative, uh, but it will give you at least an idea to start with of whether or not you did get a deletion, um, or if maybe only one of your guides is cutting and you're just getting small indels. And then finally, the most comprehensive way to do this is sequencing. Um, so you can do Sanger sequencing if your cells can grow clonally, um, or you can do next generation sequencing on pools of cells. 
And the last part of this is to talk about off-targets. So um, how deeply you want to dive into confirming whether you have off-target effects is really going to depend on the application that you're using. Um, for most lab applications, if you have multiple different guide RNAs that you're using and they have the same phenotype, that's going to confirm pretty well that you don't have any strong off-target effects that are causing your phenotype. And if that's the case, it's very easy and, and cheap to just look at the, the top predicted off-targets for each of your guide RNAs and sequence around those regions. Um, because most of the time for lab techniques, going through the entire genome um, at high enough sensitivity to detect any off-target mutations is going to be too expensive and time-consuming. Um, but of course, if you're doing anything where you're moving forward clinically or perhaps in agriculture, um, then you might need to spend more time and money. Um, and these tools um, you can find online. So the last slide um, that I'm going to talk about now is um, a couple of different resources. Um, so GenScript's website, you have a, um, a shorter link in, your, in the chat box um, that will take you to their website. And they have other webinars there about CRISPR. And they also have a handbook that has a lot of detailed info and suggested workflows that's really useful. Um, and I put some of these other links here just to kind of point out that um, Adgene, NEB, Thermo Fisher, lots of other uh, companies have various application pages on their websites. Um, so they may have the specific answer that you're looking for. Um, and then at the bottom is a link to the Google group that I mentioned from the MIT website um, that has a lot of discussion about various aspects of CRISPR. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jody from GenScript, and she's going to tell you some more about specific products available from GenScript. Okay, hi, Allison. Hi, Jody. Um, all right, so I have it on your first slide. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, hi, everybody. This is Jody Kinghorn um, from GenScript, and I will share with you some information about our CRISPR platform. So as Allison explained earlier, you can incorporate the CRISPR-Cas9 technology into your research in multiple ways. One is by using plasmids, and another is by using CRISPR-Cas9 ribonucleoprotein complexes. So for researchers who are new to gene editing and who are looking for a simple, easy-to-use CRISPR platform, we, recommended, we recommend using CRISPR plasmids as well. Um, plasmids are stable. They're strongly um, ex uh, capable of expressing fluorescent and antibiotic selection markers, and that simplifies your validation process. Depending on your cell line, you can optimize your transcription efficiency by using non-viral, lentiviral, or AAV vectors. At GenScript, we offer a variety of plasmids for guide RNA and Cas9 expression. On our website, you would find an extensive repository for CRISPR plasmids, which have been pre-validated in Dr. Feng Zhang's lab at the Broad Institute. We also host on our website, as Allison um, said earlier, an interactive CRISPR guide RNA design tool that can help you select a guide RNA for your gene of interest. We also provide a choice for customized CRISPR plasmids where our experts design and synthesize the gRNA in place for you. So uh, the second way to incorporate CRISPR in your research is by using CRISPR RNA and purified Cas9 ribonucleoprotein complexes or RNP complexes. These complexes are highly efficient and active immediately upon delivery. The complex degrades after some time in the cells, which reduces any off-target editing. This system is DNA-free, so it circumvents cytotoxicity issues. Currently, GenScript offers purified forms of CRISPR cRNA, which is designed specific to your sequence, and we help you with um, design and synthesis, um, tracer RNAs, as well as purified Cas9 proteins. You can check out these products following the link at the bottom of the slide. Um, the RNPs are recommended for advanced researchers who are familiar with their model system or cell lines and who are looking for a higher uh, editing efficiency. If your research interest is to perform high throughput screening of specific molecular targets, you can take advantage of our CRISPR gRNA library service. Our gRNA libraries have been pre-validated at the Broad Institute, and the choices include 
gecko libraries for genome-wide knockout of human and mouse genes, CRISPR synergistic activator mediator libraries or SAM libraries for transcriptional activation of every gene in the human and mouse genome, as well as pathway-focused libraries that are ideal for targeted screening of specific pathways. So if you're interested in drug resistance pathway or cell cycle, we have um, customized libraries for those pathways. Um, and for those of you who work with cell lines, GenScript also provides start-to-finish gene editing services. So you can simply specify your gene of interest and your cell line of interest, and we can provide you with validated gene-edited gene cell lines. Um, you can find all of this information and more on our website, www.genscript.com. Here you can check out our products and services and also access more CRISPR webinars that we have hosted in the past and that might be helpful to you in your research. Any questions regarding our products and services, we would be happy to hear from you. Um, please email our customer service or um, the email ID listed at the bottom of the slide. And with that, I would like to thank Alison for the webinar and thank you and all the best with your research. Thank you, Alison. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. Um, the first question up comes from Priya Darshini. So this was a good question, I think. Uh, they want to know if they are targeting a cell line whose karyotype is not known, what can they do or can they do anything to confirm that all the alleles have been targeted? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, mm. I have not worked with any cell lines with unknown karyotypes, so this isn't something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, Generally speaking, the, um, the enzyme-based um, efficiency determining methods that I talked about, like Surveyor or T7E1, um, so the way that they work is to show you whether or not um, there are alleles that are different. Um, so I think that if, if you use these methods, you could see um, that you have some wild-type allele remaining. Um, but I don't know that you would necessarily be able to figure out how many of the alleles have been targeted, um, just that either all or none versus some have been targeted. Um, and also with sequencing, of course, if you, if you sequenced um, by next generation sequencing or Sanger sequencing, you would see whether or not there's some wild type allele remaining that you would see the sequence of. Um, whereas if you see sequencing that's only um, showing the mutant allele, that would suggest that you have uh, targeted all of the alleles. Um, but if it's in between, I'm not sure off the top of my head that there would be a good way to determine how many of the alleles you have or haven't targeted. Yeah. Okay. I guess it's tricky when you don't have the, the full genome sequence information. Yeah. Thank you, Alison. That was a Good question. I um, have another question here from Anna. So you mentioned something about Cas9 could affect the growth rate of the cells. Anna would like you to elaborate a little on that. And that also overlaps with a question from Sandra, uh, who asks, does stable expression of Cas9 influence cell fitness? Could you say a bit more about that topic? Sure. Um, so in my own research, I've mostly used transient expression of Cas9, so I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with this. But in reading various publications about CRISPR, um, I've seen reports and I've heard from colleagues that having multiple integrated copies of Cas9 using viral vectors, for example, um, decreases the fitness of their cells. Um, so unfortunately, I don't know any citations off the top of my head to give you, um, but certainly I've, I've heard this from multiple different people working in multiple different cell types that the expression of Cas9 affects the cells, um, either how quickly they cycle or their viability. Um, so uh, that was, I guess, the first question. Was there a second question to that? Yeah, I guess they were, they were kind of related in a way. One was, I guess, you mentioned something about if you had a lot of if you had a lot of Cas9 expression, if you had a lot of Cas9 copies, it could affect the cells. Uh, and then the next question was related to stable expression. And I get both would be got to do with the amount of Cas9 ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And then I have another good question, which you may or may not be able to answer, but I'm curious myself. 
Iman wants to know if you have any recommendations for targeting mitochondrial DNA. And I don't even know if CRISPR can be used to target mitochondrial DNA. Boy, that is another good question that I have not thought about either. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've only used it for nuclear DNA, um, and I think Cas9 is normally um, targeted to the nucleus by a nuclear localization signal. If you buy the uh, uh, recombinant versions, um, or, or frequently in, in the plasmids, it's going to go into the nucleus with the plasmid. Um, I suppose you could potentially generate a uh, Cas9 protein that instead of a nuclear localization signal has something that will target it to the mitochondria, but I'm not sure if that's ever been done. Um, mm. But but cer certainly most of the available um, recombinant Cas9 commercially has a nuclear localization signal, so it's going to be targeted to the nucleus. Yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, a bit more maybe normal question now. <laughs> um, Marcus would like to know if there are special species specific things to take into consideration when using CRISPR and Cas9 editing and and I guess we can assume it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, are there major differences in the delivery methods and are there major differences in the Cas9 sequences? Um, and I think his field is relating to C. elegans. Um, so as far as I know, there aren't a lot of major differences in the way you need to introduce the different species of the nuclease. Um, they, they are different in the way that they are targeted to the DNA and um, they have different PAM site recognition. Um, but as far as I know, you can you can introduce, they do have quite different sequence. Some of them are more different than others, of course, depending on how divergent they are. Um, but you can find the sequences online in various publications or on the, on the websites that sell plasmids that express um, various versions of the nuclease. Um, unless the question is about different species of your cells that you're introducing um, Cas9 into, in which case, just like I've been saying, there's cell type specificity. Um, if you work with C. elegans, um, you're going to have different ways to introduce DNA or RNA or protein into your cells. Um, but the way that you do that should be pretty similar to the way you would normally introduce um, a plasmid or an siRNA. Um, it's just a slightly different version of the RNA. Yeah. I think we have time for maybe one or two short questions. Okay. Um, there were really a lot of questions, so it's a very interesting discussion. I would just like to ask, um, is there a limit to the size of deletions that can be generated by CRISPR? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so. Generally speaking, if you're just introducing one double-stranded break, the indels that are going to be introduced by the cell using non-homologous end joining um, are going to be very small, um, maybe up to something like 20 or 30 nucleotides. Um, but there have been, in recent years, um, a lot of people interested in using CRISPR technologies to make much larger deletions to model different types of diseases or um, determine the effects on different chromosomes um, of losing large pieces of DNA. Um, so one of the ways that people do this is by using a total of four guides, um, so two on each side of the breakpoint that you're interested in generating. Um, and using this method for a while, the, the limit seemed to be about one to one and a half megabases. Um, but in the past couple of months, there have been a couple of reports um, of people who have been able to generate in mice and in rats. There were two papers in scientific reports last month um, that generated multiple megabase deletions, um, up to 20 something megabases. Um, so there are considerations for doing this and how to get the cell to put the two double strand breaks that are now very far away mm. together. Um, but it seems like the limitations are, are going away as people optimize this technique. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. And um, it really is. So the last question for today is, is it possible to use CRISPR? And this is from um, Jihangir. Is, this, is it possible to use CRISPR to knock in a point mutation? Yes, so that's um, what you could use HDR for, and maybe I didn't explain this uh, clearly enough. So on your DNA template, um, which you're using for the cell to do quote-unquote error-free um, 
re repair of the break, you could introduce a single point mutation or a couple of point mutations if you need to introduce a point mutation of interest and then another um, alteration to destroy the PAM site or the target sequence, which you could make as a silent, deletion, uh, silent mutation. Um, and then because most of the template of your 100 or 500 base pairs, depending on um, what type of template you're using, whether it's single-stranded or double-stranded, most of the template is going to be homologous to, um, to the genome itself. So the cell will, will recognize this as being homologous and will use that to repair. Um, but then the, the single mutation that you've entered should be introduced as well when the cell replicates the template. Great. Okay, I think that brings us to the end of our time slot. Um, so thank you once again, Alison. That was really an excellent presentation. Um, that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thanks again, uh, Alison, uh, for a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Genscript. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminar page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you'll also be able to see the other webinars that we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Genscript and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.